This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about ambient water in Southeast Utah. Ambient water includes water from streams, lakes, and springs. And the Moab area is fortunate to have an abundance of high quality ambient water. My name is Arnie Holtquist. My formal title at this time is the Watershed Coordinator for Grand and San Juan County. I've been in the water quality field now for over 30 years. Excellent. And you are obviously very involved in testing water quality in Grand and San Juan County. What does this entail? I mean, what, what is the actual logistics of how you go about testing and monitoring water quality? So my mission at this point in time is to sample ambient water quality, not your drinking water or not necessarily your groundwater, although groundwater comes into play. So I have nothing to do with the groundwater that you drink from Moab City or from GWSSA. Moab City and GWSSA are part of my partnership. I'm well aware that the water quality that you are getting out of that drinking water is exceptional, but I have nothing to do with testing of the water that comes out of your drinking water taps. Right. Okay. I I focus on streams and lakes and other ambient sources like springs. The ambient water that you deal with, uh, like you said, in streams and lakes, uh, springs, why test this water? What are you looking for when you go and test the water? So the state is required by the Clean Water Act to test a portion of their waters to see if they meet their beneficial uses. The beneficial uses are set up whether the water itself is a source for drinking water, play, recreation, fisheries, or irrigation, or sometimes all of the above. They have numeric standards associated with that, and they are required to sample for certain portions of the state to see if those streams and lakes are meeting their beneficial or attaining their beneficial uses. That's one reason to monitor water, Okay. okay? That is the gist of my position, okay, in terms of why I am sampling water quality for the state to quantify whether or not we're meeting those, uh, those use beneficial uses, the attaining the standards. And that is not the case. We are not meeting all the standards. And that's fine. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It, well, it looks like a bad thing, but it is what it is in a desert community. It is tough to keep water below 20 degrees centigrade. That's 70 degrees Fahrenheit in, in the desert. And so if you have a cold water fishery, for instance, Mill Creek above the BLM boundary, it's tough for that water to maintain uh, less than 20 degrees. And it does not. Fish there have acclimated to the warmer water. And we do have cold water fish living in Mill Creek above the BLM boundary. So that's one reason you test it, but these standards are set by the state. And is it because ultimately this water is or could be used for drinking water? Or is that just a, that's just kind of a state they want things to be? This is where where we we do a lot of education on this. And if you haven't been in the field, it's kind of interesting the way it's, it's tangential to a lot of things that make sense to you. So your drinking water standards as a source water for drinking water. And remember, 
humans are much larger animals than fish, generally has standards that are less restrictive than your cold water and warm water fishery standards do in terms of chronicness of certain materials like metals. The other thing you need to remember with fish is that they don't live in an average condition. They live in an instantaneous condition. Yeah. They have to live in whatever they're dealing with. Whereas as humans, we, we drink water from different sources and we drink liquids from different sources, et cetera, et cetera. And they all contain a variety of levels of, of all kinds of constituents. And it's the average, our body really takes care of most of that. I mean, sure, if we were to drink ammonia, we'd get sick. But the point being is that in terms of the minor concentrations of characteristics out there, the fish are much more susceptible to changes in those concentrations and higher concentrations than we are. Right. And therefore, the standards for fisheries are generally much lower than the standards for drinking water. What are some of the main contaminants in this ambient water that you that you find? In our area, we generally have temperature as an issue, which really is a physical property, not a contaminant. The other one that is a physical property that can be an issue, which isn't a big issue, is dissolved oxygen. It's not huge. It's just a small issue at this point in time. And both of those fish are very susceptible to. In terms of other characteristics and anthropogenic uses of the water, we do have issues throughout southeastern Utah with total dissolved solids. That's the amount of solids, amount of salt in the water. And that just goes with having low flows, not a lot of water, and fairly salty soils. It's not necessarily a anthropogenic caused issue, although our anthropogenic practices exasperate those issues. Generally in southeastern Utah, we do have we do see high TDS in a variety of places and higher TDS in the ambient waters than you would see in most northern latitudes where water is quite plentiful. Yeah, the only other constituent that you have that is naturally occurring is selenium. And selenium is found in some of the soils around here, especially Manco Shale. In general, the higher the total dissolved solids, the higher the selenium. That being said, for humans, the consumption is 50 micrograms per liter, whereas for juvenile fish, the standard is 4.7 micrograms per liter. So in terms of human consumption of those waters, the amount of selenium is nowhere near any of those levels. It's when we get down to taking care of juvenile fish that we seem to have an issue with selenium naturally occurring. Hmm. Are there any other concerns that are worth addressing? Yes. In the Moab area, up above any slightly urbanized, because although we are not, quote, urbanized in Spanish Valley and Moab City. It is a relatively urban area compared to outside of our city limits and Spanish Valley. We don't seem to have a large issue with E. coli. However, we do have an issue with E. coli in Spanish Valley and in Moab City. It seems like once you get into the urbanized area, E. coli levels increase. Hmm. And I'm pretty sure that's anthropogenically caused. 
Right. And do we, I mean, is there anything we do to address those or we just make note of them? I would say at this point in time, we're working on it. None of the solutions to E. coli are necessarily easy to implement. It's non-point source pollution. Mm-hmm. So you're not dealing with a wastewater treatment plant that's a non-compliant. As a matter of fact, water coming out of the wastewater treatment plant is very compliant with E. coli and has less, much less E. coli than is in some of our streams. Actually, it's practically null by the time it gets the UV treatment. So it's, it's a tough situation to solve. We've asked for help from UDWQ to do a study on where the E. coli is coming from, and that is called a total maximum daily load in the lingo of water quality. They have only so many people to do so much work. And at this point in time, a TMDL for Mill and Pat Creek is a low priority for water quality. That being said, there's things that we can do, and we've done some of those, how well we're doing, you know, is a judgment call. My personal opinion is we're not doing as well as we could. That being said, there's things we can do like fence the cattle and the horses out of the stream. And we can keep the waste from animals uh, entering the stream by putting up berms and so on and so forth. We can put dog waste stations throughout the county and, and especially where there are trails by streams. And those are helpful too. We've also instituted a human waste campaign, and I don't believe that's going to make a major impact on the E. coli levels of the stream. I do believe it would be helpful for the sanitary conditions of the county. I think I should leave, leave it at that. I, I don't want to point fingers. See, the part of the problem is with this is that you end up pointing fingers at certain individuals and you say that it's all your fault. And that is not the case with E. coli. It's everybody's fault that our anthropogenic activities lead to larger concentrations of E. coli in water. Like I said, there are various ways we could bring those levels down. Having the gumption to do so, having the money to do so, having the willingness to do so is another story. Pack Creek, above the Forest Service boundary, is not a concern for E. coli. Interesting. Mill Creek, above the west, above the power dam, let's just say the power dam, is not a concern for E. coli. Lower down, let's make sure that's correct, because people get this wrong all the time, and I'm always being asked to do something about the water in Mill Creek and the E. coli levels in Mill Creek Canyon. Mill Creek Canyon does not have an E. coli problem. And Pat Creek above the community of Pat Creek does not have an E. coli problem. All of our E. coli problems start where the urbanized areas start. Okay, that's a very good clarification. Thanks for that. Since we're talking about Pat Creek, what has happened with water quality since the recent fire and the subsequent flooding? During the first flooding events, the water quality in Pat Creek during the flood was very deteriorated. <laughs> you can you can look at it and just know it's it's not running like it's supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> this doesn't look like it's supposed to. Yeah. Since then, when the water is running at its base flow without any heavy precipitation, the water is still the same as it was prior to the floods. Yeah. That's I can and I have been monitoring Pat Creek on a monthly basis for eight 
years now, and I, I will testify to that at this time. The other thing that Pat Creek is doing, which is interesting to some, the stream itself is changing its morphology yes. because of the flooding that has occurred. It has moved material around, changing the material that's in the bottom of the creek and on the sides of the creek. And with that morphology change, it's really interesting to watch as a naturalist. It's very hard to deal with as a scientist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but it is interesting to watch the changes in the stream morphology after the floods and as we continue. Even when it's not flooding, the stream is still changing at this point in time because there was such a large load and change during those flooding events. Drastically different. I find it fascinating. It's a change. It's a fascinating change, yes. I'm not sure whether or not the increased sand and silt that's now coming down the creek, whereas the bigger rocks are still up above. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that's actually harmful for the creek, and I'm pretty sure that'll be washed out at sooner or later. But yeah. while it's changing, it's very, very interesting to watch. Interesting. I'm sure it'll work itself out. It, it's not the first time it's flooded, that's for sure. Um, it's not the first time Mill Creek's flooded or Pack Creek's flooded. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to touch back again on the testing. So if you go and you sample the water, what physically do you do to the water to bring out its... Uh, I guess it's profile. So mostly what I do, okay, is I, I do take E. coli samples and I do have a laboratory where I analyze them myself. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have to pull a bottle for those. For the temperature and flow relationship, because there is a relationship between temperature and flow, I have seven probes in the water, continually measure depth and temperature throughout the valley and in Upper Mill Creek. I go by there on a regular basis and measure the flow, which is a simple measurement to do. Mm-hmm. And then I download those probes biannually because they, they're fine. They work for a long, long time. Occasionally a probe disappears with the flood. Something happens. You know, there are things that happen out there. For total dissolved solids, that's an interesting characteristic. Total dissolved solids, or TDS, is related to the electrical conductance of the water. When this one's fairly easy to comprehend, you can imagine the saltier the water it is, the easier it is to conduct electricity. So I have a meter that I can measure the specific conductance in the water on site. And there is a relationship between the total dissolved solids and the specific conductance. It's not a global relationship, it's a site-specific relationship, but it generally falls between 0.66 and 0.86. And if you just wanted to use 0.74, you'd (laughs) probably come up pretty close. Is there a place where your analysis can be found online or whatever with the through the city or through the county or anything historically i've used two different databases to put the field data that i collect in and one of one was the citizen science database and that database i used until a year ago or a year and a half ago and so there's a whole bunch of data on the seven sites in spanish in, in spanish valley and i when i say spanish valley i mean mill creek and pack creek 
And there's also four sites, four or five sites in Castle Valley that have um, seven years worth of data on that citizen science website. Uh, that website's tough to get data off of, but it is stored electronically and it is out there and it is available to the public. I started putting my data on UDWQ's database. Uh, I'm certified to perform that kind of work for their assessment use. So you have to meet certain data quality objectives to be able to be used for assessment. Okay. And I, I meet those requirements through the quality assurance, quality control practices I use. But the citizen science website does not take numerical flows. And when UDWQ and the Moab Area Watershed Partnership started discussing a total maximum daily load on Lower Mill Creek and Lower Pack Creek, the discussion was you can't do a TMDL without flows. So I began taking more flows at those sites along with E. coli samples and was forced to move to the Utah Division of Water Quality website, which is the Ambient Water Quality Monitoring Something. <laughs> AWQMS is the acronym, and that is available online. I don't know if you have to be a registered user to, to download data, but you can become one quite easily. The other place that the water quality data from the state goes, the Division of Water Quality, is it's all uploaded to a national site still called WQX, which can be found on the EPA's websites. Anybody can download data there from at any point in time. How does the Grand County ambient water compare with other maybe not just Utah, but desert towns, say, on the Colorado Plateau. As far as your drinking water goes, we have some of the best drinking water in the state, okay? Our drinking water is head over heels above Green River and Blanding and Bluff and Monticello. We have a very high quality drinking water in Spanish Valley, and that includes the city of Moab. Castle Valley is another story. Depending upon where your well is, you could either have very good drinking water or horrible drinking water that you can't actually, don't even want to drink. Mm -hmm. What about the ambient water? In the ambient water is fortuitous there also in that although Pat Creek does have total dissolved solids in it, it's nowhere near as salty as some of the other creeks in the South east region that cannot be used for irrigation. Although Pack Creek does exceed state water quality standards less than 10% of the time, it barely exceeds water quality standards and everybody that's using Pack Creek water for irrigation is not having any problems with their crops. We, we were exceptionally blessed with not only good drinking water, but fairly high quality ambient water in both Mill Creek and Pack Creek and mostly Castle Creek also. I mean, why, why does Moab have such excellent drinking water? Moab and Grand Water Sewer Association's culinary distributed water is sourced from the LaSalle Mountains where it enters the groundwater and stays relatively uncontaminated until it is either drawn 
or appears as springs in lower Spanish Valley. <laughs> That's a good answer. Thanks again, Arnie, for talking with Science Moab. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Science Moab Media is by Sophia Fisher, newsletter by Rhonda Cook, our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.